Welcome to It's a Mad World, a podcast on the politics of mental health and the mental health of politics. Our guest this week is an award-winning American journalist and author of five books, three on psychiatry, and he's the founder and publisher of MadInAmerica.com, a website that features research news and blogs by an international group of writers interested in rethinking psychiatry. Uh, Robert Whitaker, you're very welcome to this first episode of the It's a Mad World uh, podcast. It's, it's, it's great to have you. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so uh, you're uh, you're based on the West Coast, or rather the East Coast, uh, a bigger burden of the United States, uh, with four years of, of Trump and uh, a pandemic. <laughs> what is it like to be mad in America right now? You know, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an odd time. It really is. Yeah. And I, I think the feeling is we're becoming a failed country. That's the only way to put about it. Our politics are... I mean, <laughs> Trump was was a mad-making time. I mean, and one of the things was, is they just didn't care about truth, facts, anything mm. like that. And you really started living in a country with two narratives and yeah. one narrative was just, was just nonsense, but that became really difficult. And you know, it led to this insurrection on January 6th, yeah. which is a lot more serious than people realize. Mm. Mm. I mean, they came pretty close to, I think, stopping the certification and, you know, the plan was to have martial law declared you know, you never know how history could have gone differently, but I yeah. think we were lucky in the sense that the certification continued. Mm. But, you know, there's a, a significant percent of the population that that still believes the election was stolen. They live in a different world. Yeah. And, and so because of that, it's really hard to be optimistic that this country can find sort of the democratic impulse and the ability to govern in a way that will be you know, set us on a, a, a more, oh, I don't know. The United States has needed a new path for a long time for many different reasons. But right now it just feels broken, unable to yeah. really gather together. The, the partisanship is horrific. And, you know, we're, we're involved right now in states are passing all sorts of uh, voting restriction laws. They're really like Jim Crow mm. type laws. So it's a, it, it, it's a, I find it a sad time in the United yeah. States, to be honest. With I, mean, you. I mean, certainly uh, on the mental health side, I, I do remember early on there was a lot of comments about uh, Trump's mental health, uh, and it does strike me that very often that comes up when some um, kind of member of the dominant group, a white male, uh, powerful right. type, uh, starts to misbehave in some way. It's always their mental health rather than their right wing politics, but. The other thing that really does strike me, and you've written quite a lot about, is the corrosive effect of there being a mismatch between facts, between things we can establish objectively and scientifically and so on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you know, what's being put out by rather powerful institutions, not just the White House, but, uh, you know, uh, professional bodies, uh, big pharma and so on. Uh, do you think, like, is this, and it does seem to me to be, yet another example of the kind of what is reaped by society when we don't pay attention to, you know, a close relationship between science and, you know, what we're doing, what we're practicing? Are we practicing science or yeah. are we just making stuff up? You know, there's always a fight about what the facts are, mm. you know, politically. That's always part of any sort of society, that there is some discussion of the facts. Yeah, yeah. But what happens now is there's a whole sort of machinery for creating false realities that are very powerful. 
Now, one, of course, is, you know, is, is corporate corporations because they have so, so much power and money in essence to get their messages out. And they, you know, so, so many, so much of business <laughs> or a lot of business is built on selling stories that make people consumers to want things, that sort of thing. And that's not a fact-based enterprise. That's not a science-based enterprise. That's a building market enterprise. Yeah. And I think what we've seen with politics in the United States, but it, you know, it's happening in other countries elsewhere, is that the rise and development of social media it gives a way to create false narratives. It makes mm. it much more possible. And then we have the problem in the United States that we have a very powerful right-wing media that it's, you know, it, it was really born by right-wing radio, but then it moved into, you know, television and all that is built upon telling a false story. Now, really, if you look about the sort of origins of that false story in the United States, it, it's meant to serve the wealthy to make sure they don't get taxed and they have all sorts of tax breaks and, and you know, corporations aren't regulated, that sort of thing. So it's what we have in the United States right now. And again, I think this is not totally unique to the United States, but we basically have commercial instincts, financial instincts built on telling a narrative that benefits those with money. Now you can't sell the public on that narrative as a whole. And, and what you do, though, what you can sell a public on is tribal instincts. Because mm. there's something in human beings that can gather around mm. sort of tribal impulses. And if you can get half your population to hate the other half, yeah, then you can get them to do, you know, things that benefit the wealthy. So, and we can get into how there is a connection here to psychiatry, because psychiatry, yeah. of course, has two impulses that has been intent on selling us a false narrative for you know at least 40 years now. But I think the thing is, going back to this, with false narratives, it, it's really hard to um, a population to really make smart decisions and to, and to really even, even have policy discussions of what sort of country we want to be like, what sort of society do we want to be like. And um, I think I, 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 that's why I feel so pessimistic. I mean, we have a big part of our population, for example, that doesn't believe in climate change. Yeah. And actually thinks we should just be putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'd like, yeah. I'm going to actually, your background, you know, as a journalist as well as uh, an author on uh, topics to do with mental health, I mean, places you very well, you know, in this area, I think, of. You know how the media, as such, how the transmission of ideas uh, uh, works and uh, influences. Uh, and your book now, just for anyone who doesn't uh, know, your book, the first book uh, I think you put out on mental health was Mad in America. Your second book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, uh, to me, and it's the first one I came across. To be fair, to to Mad in America, which is a great book. But it was a real, uh, to me, a real trumpet call to say, look, all the stories of how things are going swimmingly, there's a problem with. Look, if all of the critics of the use of drugs that were overusing them, there's other things we could do. The uh, really the score sheet was uh, of disability and the 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 rise in disability that you chronicle in the book really was uh, it was a real service to mental health just to detail I, I think you continue some of it internationally in psychiatry under the influence your your third book which i i think is a really 
uh, a really important book uh, in trying to answer the question. I think Anatomy of an Epidemic, sorry, really, I think, puts forward the idea there's something wrong. Uh, there's the if if the treatments uh, and the diagnostic, you know, the labeling of illnesses that we that are mainstream in psychiatry are working, then why isn't why aren't things going down rather than up? Uh, and particularly the long term, not just are we getting a lot of short term mental health problems, but they're sticking with us. Uh, and in psychiatry, the, under the influence, I think you then ask the question, you, and if that's true, why are we doing it? Uh, why are we stuck in, in? So maybe we could talk a little bit. Uh, talk to me a little about anatomy of an epidemic and, uh, and and even how you came around to mental health as a journalist in the, in the first place. Yeah. Well, why don't I start with how I came around hmm. even to be writing about the mental health and then we'll move on to yeah. anatomy because yeah. that was really a second question that was raised for me. Here's the thing. I had no interest in psychiatry, really. <laughs> you know what? I was uh, reporting on medicine. I was the medical reporter and science reporter for a newspaper called the Albany Times Union for a number of years. And psychiatry was, when you were there, was usually just seen as sort of this, uh, I don't know, it's not a very good science. This is not where hard science is. But at the same time, this was the early 90s. We were starting to hear about all these great advances in understanding the yeah. biological causes of, of, you know, mental disorders. So it seemed like maybe psychiatry was moving into the, oh, I don't know, the modern scientific world. That's what you yeah. were, you, were, yeah. you were hearing. Yeah, on the face. So, of and I bought that. I think the important thing is, you know, this is what important people told you. By important people, I'm telling, I'm talking about people with prestige in society, academic psychiatrists that sort of thing. And they told you this story of great advance. And if, if the chemical imbalance story were true, that would be one of the greatest advances in medicine ever. Think about it. You know, our brain is so extraordinarily, the human brain is so extraordinarily complex, right? It's the most complex thing around. And we were being told in the 1990s that psychiatry had figured out the very molecule that caused madness or the very molecule that caused depression, and they could fix it. Mm. They could mm. bring it back into balance. And I don't know if you remember this, but at least in the United States, the 1990s, as this story was being promoted to the American public and increasingly it's promoted around the world, we had some people within the psychiatric establishment wringing their hands over the idea like, we've come to understand the brain so well, our problem is we really want everybody to be happy all the time or we can give people designer <laughs> designer personalities mm. we can make the shy person an extrovert yeah i mean that's what we were hearing about oh it's brave new okay. world we we'll have tape brave recorder. New world, yeah, yeah. Right? soma every day oh. for breakfast and a tape recorder yeah. under the bed and so that's the story i sort of heard in the background when i was covering medicine mm. and science but then what, what really happened was i left i left um daily newspaper writing, and I, ha I formed a company that focused on the development of new drugs, okay? And also the business aspects of development of new drugs. And what happened is when I been began writing about the drug industry, it became clear that clinical trials of new drugs were not scientific enterprises. They were marketing enterprises. You designed your clinical trials to make your drug look new of good. And the prime example of that was psychiatry. Yeah. Okay, that's what got me into psychiatry was corruption within the drug industry. But then what happened was this. I was doing a series for the 
go writing a series for the Boston Globe on sort of abuses of psychiatric patients in research settings. And I came upon two studies that didn't make sense with that narrative of progress. One were the studies done by the World Health Organization going back to the 1970s, which found, twice found that outcomes for schizophrenia patients were much better in the poor countries of the world than in the rich countries. Yeah. And you can see in the, after the first stunning finding, the best, they were, the three developing countries were India, Colombia, and Nigeria. Mm. And actually the best outcomes were in India and Nigeria. This is the international pilot study on schizophrenia in the early Exactly. Early and then after the yeah. first one, they, they raised the question because this was so stunning. One of the hypotheses was, well, maybe the reason for the better outcomes in the poor countries is they're more medication compliant. Schizophrenia patients take their antipsychotics. Mm. So they measured medication use. And what did they find? Yeah. They found that in the poor, Indian, in Nigeria in particular, they may have used the drugs acutely for short period of times, but they kept very few patients on the drugs long term. Mm. And yet it was in those countries, they said that a, a patient who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia has a significantly better chance of a good outcome. Mm. So all of a sudden that begins exploding the narrative I had believed in. Yeah. And then the other thing was a Harvard study that said that schizophrenia outcomes had actually declined in the last 15 years. This was in the mid-1990s, the study came out, and were now no better than they had been in the first half of the 20th century, which completely belies that story yeah. of progress, I had believed. Well, you, you'll, be, you'll be interested, uh, uh, Bob, in uh, my memory uh, training in the late 80s uh, in psychiatry in the early 90s, the story of the IPSS, the, the the schizophrenia study, that international study, uh, in terms of uh, its uh, its message about the outcomes and the response to Western uses of medication, absolutely suppressed. We didn't hear about it. I had to read about that years later. Uh, but what we were told was that this study established that this was a label which could be applied if you use the right labeling methods. Uh, <laughs> particularly this, it will come on to the the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, if you followed a systematic criterion-based approach, you could diagnose this anywhere. So the labeling, we're right about labeling. This was <laughs> emphasized. And we're, we seem to be very wrong about drugging. Uh, no mention. Just that there are better <laughs> outcomes in developing countries was just, it was put on the shelf as some sort of mystery rather yes, than exactly. you know, a, a revelation that really demanded at a global level, at an international level, really demanded an answer. And I, I think you've seen that pattern repeatedly. Uh, well, first of all, that was I had the same experience. So I first just saw the results and I called people up and said, I mean, the experts, the thought hmm. leaders, why are outcomes better in India and Nigeria? Hmm. And they said, well, we don't really know. It's sort of a mystery, but maybe because uh, people are nicer there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this doesn't sound very good. I mean, it doesn't sound very convincing to me. I I had to read the I had to read the reports in great detail before I came upon the medication stuff. Yeah, no one told me that. Yeah. you had to dig that out from the research. Literature. I mean, there were some suggestions, and I mean, I've still to this day influenced by the notion that in. Uh, in societies where kind of industrial capitalism and the kind of uh, rigid, the rigidities of work and being excluded from work, which we know is a certain way in which people get marginalized in, in your so-called developed countries, uh, that, you know, there being a place for everybody might have been yeah, sure. one reason why uh, a society that on the face of it wasn't that wealthy 
well, might actually have a more integrated uh, social network that people just would not fall out of. Now, I, I did buy into that, I have to say, as an answer. And I think it's possibly a, con- a contribution. But uh, as oh, you no, discovered... I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, yeah. one of the things when they, when they went back 15 years later to check up on people in that study, they found that in the developed countries, people diagnosed with schizophrenia weren't working. They mm. were sort of in group homes, that sort of thing. Whereas in India, <laughs> they wrote about, they would come to where they look up the people in the study and they'd say, okay, I can give you an hour of my time, but you, you know, I'm busy, I'm working, I'm hanging out in the fields and so. So I think yeah. that's yeah, true. Yeah. But let's also, uh, there's clearly evidence that not being on antipsychotic medication yeah. long-term yes. enables working, yes. <laughs> enables yes. greater function. Yeah. So I think they go hand in hand. Uh, absolutely, not just absolutely, one. absolutely. So, so just to finish the Mad in America yes. story real quickly was when I approached that book was I knew what the conventional narrative was, which was a story of progress. But then I had some research that was showing, well, that doesn't seem to really be true. And then the other thing was talking to people with, you know, lived experience, ex-mental, ex-hospitalized patients. They were going, we hate these drugs. Yeah. And so I, I sensed that there was another narrative to yeah. be found in the experience of patients. So that's mad in america now that was focused on quote the seriously mentally ill diagnosis schizophrenia basically but then i begin people begin asking me what about the children how come we're getting all this bipolar disorder Hmm. and so anatomy of an epidemic was designed again with a question Hmm. okay we're getting more and more people diagnosed we have supposedly these second generation drugs that are so much better Hmm. and yet the burden of, of mental disorders in our society is going way up. And yeah. I use the disability numbers as mm-hmm. a marker of, of that burden. And what you find here is, especially with long-term outcomes, there's a, there's a, a very clear line of evidence for psychiatric drugs, however they might affect symptoms over the short term. But again and again, you see this line of evidence that say that antidepressants increase the chronicity of disorder. <clears throat> You see that bipolar has changed from, a, you know, it used to be called manic depressive illness, from a rare illness that had an episodic course to a much more common illness that runs eight. It went turned from an episodic to a much more chronic course. So you, and you see it, of course, with the antipsychotics too. So I had a question. Common narrative is we're making so much progress, these drugs fix chemical imbalances, which is a story that, if true, should have diminished the burden of yeah. mental illness. Yes. And, and instead, is, we yeah. were saying the opposite. Yeah. And then the answer really is, the first part of that answer is, well, first of all, you're expanding the diagnosis. We're bringing more people into the, the web. And two, we have a paradigm of care that helps turn people into chronic patients that take momentary difficulties and make them into patients. Now they're on drugs for long term and their life has gone down a different course. And in that book, I also began to look at, well, why do we have this conventional narrative? And it's really because you had psychiatry as a guild decide to become a, a guild that just basically peddled drugs and less, left therapy to other people. And, you know, they joined forces with the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry, we say, captured them. They began paying academic doctors to be their speakers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you had a narrative voice emerge in society. And at first really emerged the United States and then sort of expanded into other countries, which was serving guild interests, which was serving pharmaceutical industry interests for expanding the market. Mm -hmm. But 
in order to do that, it had to tell a false story because science wasn't supporting the story they wanted to tell. And the, the classic example of that is the chemical imbalance story. Yes. Now, I, in, in uh, anatomy as well, I mean, you, I, and I think in Psychiatry Under the Influence, you, you took a particular period in history. You talk, you talk about the last 2035 um, years, and I think you were referring to from about 1980 to 2015 when you were writing that book. But the, the start point is reasonably clear in lots of accounts of this kind of new age where this intense uh, institutional message, manufactured message of uh, chemical imbalances and, you know, the, silver, the, the magic bullet of drugs and so on arose, uh, very much uh, comes after a period of kind of radicalization in the 60s. Uh, people often forget uh, America was one of the more radical and progressive parts of the world in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, immediately you say it, often people see the images of uh, civil rights marches, Martin Luther King, anti-war and so on. But then there was a a, uh, a change, a switch in, in world politics from that kind of welfare state uh, um, capitalism in the West to what is now referred to as neoliberalism. Um, David Harvey, a, a Marxist uh, writer, uh, he, he dates it 1975. And the two examples he uses are Pinochet's Chile and New, mm. and New York City. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's in 1975, New York City, the bankers literally took over uh, the annual kind of request for money to run public services, you know, mental health, <laughs> hospitals, schools and so on was just suddenly turned down and said, no, um, there will be a little committee of the of the rich who will run your city for you. And this is like a city that is, you know, the size of a, a reasonable sized country. Um, but all of these developments, this uh, this intensity of uh, the money people having a powerful position over the that integration between private and public um, services that I think often uh, kind of people miss that the early part of drug research, if we're, when we're going to talk a little about that, uh, a lot of the early parts of drug research are uh, are publicly funded uh, by, you know, government through government agencies like in your country, the National Institute of Mental Health academies, you know, the universities and so on. And it's only at the later stages of clinical development and so on uh, that the drug companies get involved. But that in the early 90s, you, you talk about the, the, the Bay-Dole Act, and for people who don't know what that is, a piece of legislation was passed which suddenly allowed the early development uh, by the public institutions, allowed those researchers or, you know, uh, department heads and so on to sell what they found to the drug companies. And I think this is, while I think the changes in uh, the guild, as you say, the professionals, the psychiatrists in particular we're talking about now, not just any, any old mental health workers, but the psychiatrists in particular, uh, led a, a powerful move. Maybe you can talk to us a little about how that developed, because it is, it is quite astonishing, the switchover that came from yeah. a, a rather psychological and psychoanalytic kind of uh, orientation in uh, in mental health switch right over to this more crude menu yeah recipe you know, this book is, approach. You, you've you've really painted an interesting picture here. <laughs> so much I focused on what happened in 1980 with American psychiatry, and that what what happened there was, and we could talk about that. But they wrote their 
they published their third edition of their diagnostic and statistical yeah. manual, and they made a big switch. So the first two had all sorts of Freudian impulses, the idea of neurosis. And, you know, neurosis is something that is common to everybody in a way. You know, we can all be neurotic. And, and then, but what they do in 1980 is adopt a disease model. But you've done something really interesting here is you've put this in a larger societal context, a larger chain. So if you look within the United States, um, <clears throat> we had this incredible sort of democratization movement in the 60s with, because of civil rights, okay? The voting, the extension of voting rights to all the population, right? I mean, think about it. We had a segment of our population that really couldn't vote for like a hundred years. I mean, following the end of the civil war. So that was an incredible sort of liberating moment. But it also, you know, when you have something like that emerge, it triggers a backlash. And the backlash that occurred in the United States was a real trend towards conservatism and, and sort of this weird patriotism, you know, this, cause we, we did have the protests against the Vietnam War, but that, triggered a, a backlash where people started waving the flag, et cetera. And also what happened is, and the Pinochet thing is really key here, is it became harder and harder to be critical of, of sort of capitalistic America, the, the military industrial complex America, okay? That being seen as anti-American or something. Mm. And then with 1980, I, I get what you're saying in 1975. I was living in New York City at the time. Mm. But... Um, it was Reagan. Reagan comes in in 1980. And there's the whole part of Reagan is we're going to deregulate. And we're actually going to create like you mentioned, the Bayh-Dole Act, we're going to create this anything to sort of help business boom. And so what happened here with Bayh-Dole was it was, oh, we're going to make a partnership between academic medicine and the drug industry. And yeah, the government will fund a lot of these things, basic research, and then it'll be handed over to the drug companies uh, to you know, commercialize. And that had a, a, a huge effect within yes. psychiatry and medicine because what happened, it means academic doctors who previously had looked at commercial money with a, a hands-off approach. Well, that's sort of sleazy money. Mm. We, we need to be above that. But now all of a sudden, they can get this money to themselves directly. It's harder to get NIH money, government-funded research, so, and there was also some changes in medicine. So they began to look to industry to get money as consultants, advisors, speakers. And that's when you get this whole commercialization of medicine and psychiatry. So it, it's absolutely within this larger sort of political revolution. And think about neoliberalism. Hmm. Neoliberalism places all the problems in the individual, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't say that we have so social communities that, people respond to yes it's like the pro if you're not happy or if you're a kid who doesn't like school it's inside you the individual and that's a that's a belief that's a philosophy of being that really promotes fixing the individual yes and you call them uh you call them disease or disordered and you give them a drug to change them so all that happened at the same time create this you know new wave this new psychiatry and i i think you have to understand this gave us a psychiatry gave us a new philosophy of being that was out of sync with all of the past. Yes, yes. I mean, you, you cover you cover that quite well. I mean, if we, if we even look at the the recent history of mental health, I mean, I think you you account that you know in ancient writings and so on. There's always been stories of 
kind of extremes of feeling or action that that happened to people in the course of their lives. Um, but there was a, a in the last say three four hundred years. You you talk about the the end of the eighteenth century, say about two hundred years ago. In particular, the influence of of the Quakers, which I, I think is quite an interesting, who who were in their own way influenced by that. The late eighteenth century is a period we know as revolutionary. It was revolutionary in the United States in seventeen seventy six, throwing out the uh, the British uh, colonial powers, uh, but also in France, the overthrow of the old feudal order, uh, the sure. royalty, the aristocrats. But going along with that, uh, a kind of a radical relooking at what do we do with people who become mentally unwell, at the same time that there are a lot more of them, it would appear, that people are falling out in, in this move from country to city, there is, that question is thrown up. And the, the Quakers, I, I, I'm quite interested in even why it's the, like, why is it this religious group? And I think that a lot, uh, we, we forget if we look back at history, that in the overthrow from feudalism to capitalism in, and, and in the places it happened very dramatically, like France, but also in Germany and in Britain, the language of revolt was, uh, was often the language of religion because, you know, this was the common way that people understood the world. Uh, and as a result, some of the people with the most inspiring and often uh, like the Quakers, I, I think if I was to be a Christian, I'd have to get over the hoop. I think Jesus is a nice guy, but I, I don't know if they'd have me, but... You know, there's a lot about them in being, you know, anti-war and distrustful. I mean, they wouldn't bear arms for the state. Uh, that that obviously appeals to me. But it was in, say, York in Britain and later on in Philadelphia that right. they they really were key agents in bringing forward this, as they called it, moral approach. You know, that you treat people as brethren, as siblings, I think we would now say, uh, bros, yeah. bros before brutes. As opposed to the old way, you know, of treating yeah. people as brutish uh, when they became un uh, unwell. Um, uh, tell I, I me a little about that period, because you're right. Well, quite no, well I think about this it. is really a, a key thing to look at and, and, and investigate. So the Quakers weren't just any religious group. Hmm. The Quakers, of course, were outcasts. Yes. In in Britain. Yes. They were not part of any power structure whatsoever, of course. They were not part of, uh, you know, the Anglican church or anything like that. So the Quakers were seen as outcasts. And you know how Quakers worship. They worship, mm. it's not like a minister standing up yeah. on top, speaking down. They worship as a group. So this yeah. feeling of brethren, of community, was just central to who they were. And so that allowed them to conceive of quote the mad person, yes, not as someone who's the other mm. or someone who needs to be tamed or feared, but as them, as one of us. Yeah. And once you start with that, as one of us, you say, well, how would we like to be treated if we in, sort of descended into a very difficult mm. or, or mad state? Mm. And the idea was, well, we'd like to be treated with kindness. Uh, we'd like to have shelter, three good meals a day access to nature and that's what they built in york in 1796 i think that's it was, right roughly. that's yes the, the york so, retreat 
Yeah, and that was against these mad asylums that had been in England where, you know, yeah. they were brutish. Yeah. Okay, they were also commercialized, mm. by the I, way, I, but I they think were there, brutish. There was a very prominent death of a Quaker in the York Asylum, uh, manacled and beaten and stuff. In Bedlam, actually, uh, I think. Or, or I don't know if it was in the York Asylum, but it was in Bedlam, actually, I think. Oh, maybe, yes. It was in Bedlam. And so they said, okay, we don't know much about madness, but we know that's not right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's take care of our own. Yeah. And what they did is, you know, what's really interesting. The Quakers studied themselves. They studied how their new uh, asylum was out in the countryside outside mm. New York mm. and what happened. And they found that the course of the behavior of, quote, mad people changed. If you treated yes. them with kindness, gave them food, allowed them dressed like ordinary people, you know what? Mm. Their behavior changed dramatically. And they found, especially with people who were first episode, they got better. Mm, yes. And that was a difference. That was yeah. a difference compared to what they were seeing in the in the asylum. Uh, and you, you and can it, you can see that they they almost they're responding to a fear that would have been there that if you do this kind of nice stuff, you will yeah. be as carers, you will be injured. These are violent people and yes, that's absolutely. all very well. Because we see a lot of that still to this day. But but they they suddenly found they they <laughs> they persevered. And they found well, they that did. actually this d just wasn't turning out to be true, that there weren't injuries to staff and so on. Yeah, and if you read uh, Took's book, William Took's mm. book, about this story, he says, should we really be surprised if we stop whipping these people that they'll, they will no longer resist us? Because it used to be that there would be, oh, these people are brutes. By virtue of having lost their reason, they had descended to the level of animals. And, you know, you had to, you know, chain them, you had to whip them. And they said, should we really be surprised if we treat people with kindness and yes. that yes. They, they, they reward us in this way, their behavior changes? And I think the most beautiful thing was this. They said, we don't know what causes madness, yeah. but we do know their brethren. Hmm. And they said, we believe they have a God-given capacity to regain their, their sanity, so to speak. And they said, and that can happen to many people, but if it doesn't, we still have an obligation to take care of them as brethren, which is such a humanistic way of approaching this. And what's interesting is what it gets adopted by Quakers in the United States, mm. and you see outcomes in these early moral uh, treatment places. They're they're good. Yes, yes. People this, are getting this, this work. Is, yes, it's not just fanciful. No, Ni nice people. guy theory in the pub. Uh, they actually went and did it, and it was uh, successful. They had outcomes. Now this brings us to one of the ways that you use this early, uh, this early approach, uh, well, early in the history of capitalism in the last two, three hundred years, is you compare their outcomes to the modern outcomes. You know this old technology light uh, approach uh, was having outcomes that really we would be delighted to have in modern mental health centers uh, today. Yeah, basically, if you really look at first episode uh, patients mm. entering those asylums in the early to mid 1800s, and the biggest study was done at Worcester Asylum in Massachusetts, you find that of an initial group, about 67% Two-thirds would be discharged within one year, okay? Yeah. And the best long-term study we have is that of those discharged, something like, let me get this right, 60% never came back to a second time, and only about 25 30% had become chronically ill. 
Yeah. So there was there was one group that never came back. Then there was another group that maybe came back once. Yeah. But there really was only about, I think it was around 25, 30% yeah. that became chronically ill. So that's not what happens today. I mean, if you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, at least in Western countries, you're very likely to become chronically ill. Yeah. I mean, you're going to spend, if you get a diagnosis of schizophrenia, that's going to be your life, basically. Mm. And, and, be, but so but before we finish, I, I want to leave the last question in terms of where to from here, which I know, and like you cover just for people again, I'll plug your, your book, Psychiatry Under the Influence. Uh, there's a very good discussion uh, of the difficulties. I think you're again, I, I, your early comments, uh, I think, about the Quakers and humility is something that really uh, has gone missing in uh, certainly a lot of mainstream discussions like we know and you know here is the yes. answer kind of thing um, but you're very uh, humble it, it is a difficult area uh, I think your earlier comment about you know the complexity of the brain uh, is also the complexity of human interaction uh, there are more neurons in our in our brains than there are uh, stars in the known universe uh, so, you know, we treat it at times as if we're fixing, you know, the chain off a bicycle when really we're dealing <laughs> with the most I like, you know, when people say it's not rocket science, it's like, yeah, a lot of things are not rocket science. Even rocket science isn't rocket science. <laughs> it can often be easily understood. But uh, mental health and the interaction between people, I think the dumbing down of it is uh, is often uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, just before we get, get on to uh, a, a quick discussion of, of ways forward, it is remarkable the manipulation of data that has occurred in this area. I mean, things like maybe even just to talk about the Paxil 329 study, where the effect like do, do antidepressants, SSRI antidepressants, this one flavoxamine in particular, a brand name Paxil, work is it safe and effective in children right and the data said not safe doesn't and not effective and the paper concluded safe and effective i mean literally how does this happen well you know that's such an example of this sort of corruption of science and it's most egregious uh, it's such an egregious example i just want to say the corruption of clinical trial data mm. You see it with the arrival of the new atypical antipsychotics. You see it with the arrival of Prozac. Uh, the data that was submitted to the FDA did not tell of breakthrough drugs. Yes. told of marginally yes. uh, beneficial drugs over the short term with all sorts of side effects. Hmm. Then what you see being promoted in yes. the press is wonder drugs, etc. Yeah. That was always uh, nonsense, okay? Hmm. The, it, but the... Use of antidepressants in children, I think, is one of the most disturbing episodes yeah. in medicine. The reason is they never work. Mm. Okay, even on target symptoms, they did not meet placebo, okay? Mm -hmm. And you were seeing all sorts of adverse events, including, uh, you know, sort of suicidal activation, etc. Yeah. So when the FDA first looked at this, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, approve a label for for using antidepressants in children because it seemed like the suicide risk was at least doubled hmm. and they weren't effective. They didn't knock down yeah. um, symptoms any better than uh, placebo. Yeah. And by the way, this is even in trials designed by the drug companies yes. to make yes. the drugs look good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Paxil comes along and Paxil had always been a pretty problematic drug, very activating, yes. et cetera. And they do a trial, and they want also to get it used in, in, uh, in children, in youth. Their problem was they had a bunch of suicidal 
uh, behavior and act, you know attempts, if I remember correctly, in the Paxil uh, treated group. But because the whole business had become so corrupt, the drug company basically did the trial. Then its own people analyzed the data. Its own people wrote up the reports, and then they just asked the academic doctors yes. to sign off on this. Yes. And so what they did is they just eliminated the evidence of suicidal risk with this drug. Now, the way they did it, it, it it's many ways they do it. Sometimes mm. they just wipe it from the case report forms. But also they'll do things like um, they'll take – they find a way to uh, to take – Suicidal behavior on the drug and assign it to the placebo. They, yes. they did that as well. Yeah. So, but the key story is here. They were facing a choice. They had a drug. I'm talking about the company and the people doing that trial. They had a drug on trials that wasn't effective, but at the very least was shown as having a, quite a high risk of stirring suicidal behavior. And I think it was something like 6% of the kids in that trial that got Paxil had some suicidal behavior. Okay? That's not an insignificant risk. They decided to say that there was no increased risk and declare it effective. In other words, they would completely, they would spin the efficacy results and hide the safety data in order to get their drug on market and make some extra money. Yeah. They made that decision while imperiling the lives of children yeah. and adolescents. And I know parents whose kids were placed on an antidepressant who then committed suicide. So in a way, this is corruption. Not in a way. This is corruption that killed young people. And, and uh, even, the, like, even the way in which the different companies, Paxil as in fluvoxamine was a later, actually one of the earlier developments after the kind of blockbuster Buster uh, drug Prozac fluoxetine. Uh, By the way, isn't yep. isn't isn't Paxil fluoxetine? Fluvoxamine here. I don't know. Sometimes there are subtle differences between oh, okay. generic names right. between here and America. But Paxil here was called something else. I don't think it was called Paxil. Even the brand name was different. It, to, to confuse okay, yeah, us. Yeah, I know there's some confusion. But here. there there was this development of what we call Me Too drugs. When you see a certain drug and a certain kind of chemical group is successful, you go looking within that group to see, can you make another one? And now in things like antibiotics, that makes a certain amount of sense. You know, the more of a range, the more bugs we can hit. But this kind of search for me too was doing research on the basis that we know a drug, in this case, Prozac makes profits, therefore we'll try to make one like it. When you succeed as, you know, uh, in terms of Paxil, yeah, they got one. But the question, well, you know, Prozac has already filled up most of the market. There's a drive to find, you know, niche markets, a, a particular, and they went for social anxiety. They went for the more anxious uh, uh, conditions, but they also went for children and they went for them. <laughs> it sounds like they went for children. Yes, exactly. They targeted children like the way cigarette companies have targeted children, just to say, this is a group of people who can consume our product. And this is what's, you know, maybe to try and move towards uh, a conclusion today. And I'd, I'd love to have you back. I'm, I'm yeah, sure. Bob, if fun. today's experience is good, we'll, 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 we'll do this again. Great. But again, this how the profit motive here has served uh, to corrupt, you know, big pharma. I mean, you talk about in your book, like how if a company is a profit making company, if it's a capitalist enterprise, 
Uh, not alone can you expect it to maximize profits, but it's almost legally obliged to. Now, again, obviously coming from the left, I, you know, there's a problem with that, that maybe that's not how we should do it. <laughs> I, I think right at the moment, actually, the vaccine distribution shows you the difficulty that if you have drug production in the hands of profit makers, all manner of uh, problems arise. This notion of, oh, it'll be done efficiently and quickly. It's like, no, you'll get very low production rates. They'll all be fighting with each other. And at the end of it, you just don't get a good distribution uh, of, uh, uh, you know, even when we, in the case of the vaccine, want the thing. Uh, yeah. But you also, in mental health, I think, is a really good example of we get an over distribution of a thing that actually is not that great. As you put it so often in your book, uh, we get a playing down of the harms or the risks and we get a an exaggeration uh, of the benefits. So. Just to, to bring us out, uh, obviously, we've got you talk about economies of influence in your book, Psychiatry Under the Influence, which I, I would recommend people have a look in. Very up to date, very well referenced uh, account of the distortions of the scientific record and so on. But at the end of the book, you start to look at, look, what can we do? And the economies of influence, as I understand them, there's kind of the money coming from big pharma. But also then there are the what you call the guild in, in interests, you know, a guild as in it was like an old fashioned a medieval trade union. <laughs> uh, but guilds are very often quite hierarchical, like in, they're not a trade union. They defend the interests of a profession, but in a very old fashioned way and in a very hierarchical way. But this kind of um, this kind of tag team, this this uh, this uh, relationship has been incredibly destructive. And but you look at. What can we reform? And what, what, what would you now, on mature reflection, what, what, what do you lead on now? What do you really think the yeah, best solutions. and maybe more, more, most practical solutions in this area are? You know, that's a really great question because that book was written. I was, uh, Lisa Cosgrove and I were uh, fellows at a Harvard lab set up to study institutional corruption. And the, the premise was if you can eliminate the influences, <laughs> the corrupting influences, then you can, with institutional corruption, you need to figure out what are the influences, then you need to, uh, you know, remove the influences. Yeah. And the short answer would be this. In society, who do, with medicine and psychiatry, for example, who does society really look to for the narrative, for the information? It's not the drug companies, because as you mentioned, the drug companies are there to maximize shareholder value, okay? That's really, that's what they do. And there is actually a bit of a legal obligation in the United States to, to do that, to consider the financial interests of your shareholders. And by the way, in that sense, pharmaceutical companies did an excellent job with their psychiatric drugs. In 1987, we were spending, the United States was mm. spending about $800 million in psychiatric right. drugs. By 2010, it was $40 Third, billion. Yeah. They did great. That's a, a 40, <laughs> for people slow on the maths, that's about a 40-fold increase in the yeah, space exactly. of so 20 years. Yeah, exactly. So it's incredible. So um, what's the solution? The solution is, first, we got to look at who do we look mm. For in society, for our information about science. Well, we look to the scientists or the doctors, et cetera. And frankly, we look to people who are in pre at prestigious institutions, you know, because we think, ah, oh, they put science first, they put medicine first. So somehow you have to have a solution that completely breaks the tie, the commercial tie 
between academic doctors and mm. drug companies. You have to completely yeah. break that. Yeah. And number two, you have to somehow set up a system that rewards people that really serve medical interests, scientific interests. And, and this goes back, and you, get, you have to have the testing of new or testing of treatments, medical treatments that are truly independent. And if they're truly independent, you can't just have people with the guild interests. Hmm. So psychiatry, at least in the United States, what do they do? They prescribe drugs. Hmm. That's their product. Hmm. So they can, hardly, they can hardly say our products are harmful because no guild puts itself out of business. Yeah. And that's what psychiatry does now. So you have to have testing of medical interventions that isn't just done by the leaders in that guild. You have to have people outside the guild involved in the design of study, the analyzing of the data, uh, the collection of the data, the publication of the data. That's what you need to do. You need to set, have this independence from the pharmaceutical industry. And you can't have just a guild that does its evaluation of its own treatments. Because whatever the guild is doing, they'll mm. say it's worthwhile. And yeah. by the way, the final thing you mentioned, vaccines. Mm. Do you remember uh, Joseph Sock and the polio vaccine? Oh, yeah. Now you can't uh, patent the sun. Yeah, it's the most wonderful. <laughs> it's the most, one of the most wonderful quotes, I think, in science. You know, when he was asked, why didn't you patent it and make money out of the uh, polio vaccine? You know, a vaccine that prevented a, common good. A, a really horrible, crippling uh, illness. And he just yeah. says, would you patent this on? Like, what a ridiculous question. Uh, you know, uh, right. So that I, was, I, not just because he was some sort of saintly person, but that was more of the zeitgeist of the time. The, the, just the, the notion of the public good as a, yeah. you know, as something that was worth striving and struggling for. Uh, you know, why don't you sell one of your children if you're broke? You know, people would look at you and go, what do you mean? You know, maybe right. in a period of slavery, that might make sense. But now, uh, and this is maybe uh, <clears throat> to, to bring us uh, to a close today, the influence of the profit motive. Uh, like, I, I'm struck by the guild. And in your, in your book, I think you come down heavily on the power of the guild. And I think in, certainly in the United States now, and I'm saying it's the only country in which this is true, but I do wonder that the availability of money from the drug industry, but also the, the kind of market, and you refer to it quite often, that psychiatrists not alone are not inclined to cooperate with some of the other specialties. There are other specialties in mental health, social work, psychotherapists, uh, language therapists, OTs, play therapists, care workers. I mean, there are just so many people. Uh, and, and, you know, interests like sociology and psychology and so on that they could look to. But they're in competition with these in a marketized kind of health system. Now, it's one of the reasons why in broader scope, I do wonder that, you know, not alone do we have to regulate the, the profiteers, you know, with the kind of FDA type body in, in America, what are they, the health products regulatory, the, you know, the, the, the right. drug regulatory authorities, but perhaps to exclude them altogether and nationalize drug production and make sure that it's all a public realm uh, and that if all psychiatrists were on public salaries rather than competing in this private fee market, that some of the, you know, some of the point of competition and the, the reward that you talk about for, I was going to say telling lies, and you talk quite well about <laughs> the whole idea about cognitive dissonance, that often when we are really, you know, 
not relating something that is true. We're often not conscious uh, of it. And I, I think that is a very powerful dynamic. But to finish, where do you see, if at all, where are the forces in society? I, I, I mean, my own feeling is they're at low ebb now, so I'm not expecting you to inv invent them. But where do you see it coming from? I mean, you, you, you talk and say, look, the psychiatrists are not going to reform psychiatry. It's something yeah. I very much agree with. But where, where do you see that, that energy or power in society coming from, even if it is a little... To reform psychiatry or to reform... Uh, the, yeah, mental health, the use of drugs, the corruption of science, uh, all of the things that you really have drawn attention to. How, how do you see them changing? You know, uh, I'm a bit <laughs> cynical as well. I can uh, hear it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, here's just to start with, you know, our national gross domestic product a year in the United States, I think is around $3 trillion now, $30 trillion. Yes. I, I think. Yes. And uh, the amount that goes to healthcare now is 20%. 20, yes. So that's a $6 trillion yeah. industry. Uh, you of, think that uh, industry is, of which only half gets to healthcare. Uh, yeah, uh, and you Harvard, know, we have terrible outcomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, absolutely. You rank one in spending and 30 in outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem is it's really hard yeah. to, once you get an industry built up, yes. it's really hard to Absolutely. absolutely. And like Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign, I thought, and I was delighted with the view of Medicare for All and so on, uh, I think one of the things he established was, one, there's, an, there's another argument you don't hear very often against the massively right. privatized system. But two, that it's quite popular in the United States. I, I think people often have this idea that all of these Americans are, you know, yeah. uh, they're all converted to the, you know, the uh, capitalist markets and so on. It's like, and Bernie Sanders just... Uh, drove a truck through that going, no, this is quite popular. If you want to provide a public service, people want yeah. that. They're tired of this kind of wasteful. You know, if Bernie Sanders had gotten a nomination in 2016, he probably would have won. Yes. Uh, oh, look. Uh, <laughs> and we would have been yes. in a different country. Oh, you yeah. Know? Uh, look, it, um, it, I, I, we, we maybe finish today on that note that, uh, okay. you know, that yes, and sometimes it does come down to chance uh, and uh, that we, we need a little bit of luck sometime. But uh, I think... Uh, right now we need a lot of luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say a Goodbye. I'm going to thank uh, Bob and hopefully uh, Bob will come back uh, and uh, join us. Uh, I maybe uh, not just thank Robert, but actually recommend people go on uh, the madinamerica.com uh, website. Uh, you will not find, I think, uh, a better website to access the kind of information and opinion, uh, articles, resources, and so on, and uh, links to Bob's books, which I suggest, I really strongly recommend uh, that you read. I mean, Anatomy of an Epidemic, in my view, is one of, is a real, it's a milestone book. It's, it's well worth reading. Uh, Psychiatry Under the Influence, in many ways, really updates and develops the, the story. I really would adv advise people uh, to check out madinamerica.com. And really, all I've left to say is thank you uh, for listening. That's all we have this week. Thanks to all who've tuned into this podcast. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests or anything else, please do contact me by email at ogrady.padder at gmail.com. That's ogrady.padder, P-E-A-D-A-R at gmail.com. Uh, goodbye for now. Uh, hope you get well. Hope you stay well. See you all soon. Thanks for having me.